Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The title I'm working with is uh, Thanksgiving, Parody and Reality. And of course, Eucharist just means Thanksgiving. And we've just passed through Thanksgiving. And Jesus' ministry involves a lot of eating. I don't know if you've noticed, a lot of meals, wedding feasts, dining in the homes of the wealthy, eating with tax collectors and sinners, and eating with his friends. In the book of John, in fact, there's a lot of domestic scenes of Jesus eating. And of course, the Last Supper. And even after the Last Supper, in the resurrection appearances, several times they have meals. And so we might call this a ministry of meals. And there are several lessons, just sort of very obvious lessons. The sharing of a little bit of food, that this is the feeding of the 5,000, the two loaves, and the, the fish is shared among many. Sharing in a non-exclusive manner, that is that all come, the tax collectors and sinners and uh, the words that we pronounce over the table, that all are welcome. It's the Lord's Supper. Sharing the self in the same manner as Christ shared. That's going to be the picture in the Lord's Supper that, of course, he lays down his life. And part of the picture of the communion is that we follow his example. Maybe that's not strong enough. Through the strength of Christ, through being embodied or partaking of the body of Christ, that Jesus is continuing, or we continue, that loving, sharing ministry. So communal eating, or the communion, replaces sacrifice. And I don't just mean the sacrifice of the Old Testament, but religious sacrifice and a life that is sacrificial, and of course I mean bad sacrifice that our tendency is to sacrifice other people, and very often in religious sacrifice, this is what you have. I was just reading about the Native Americans. I won't get gruesome on you, but uh, of course that it is a very common thing among Native peoples that part of their sacrificial meal is that they are cannibalistic. If you want to acquire the bravery or the, you know, whatever it is that you imagine your enemies have, well, the way you require that, you eat them. And so religious sacrifice can be quite violent. It can be exclusionary. It can depend upon the slaughter of the enemy. It can depend upon gaining what they have in its most literal form, you know, that you're eating cannibalistically. And I I don't think we should draw back from that because that's in fact what the early Romans would accuse the Christians of. The Bible unfolds its anthropology and its theology in two directions. We're going to see the sacrifice of Cain and we're going to see the development of sacrificial systems like the Joseph's brothers sacrificed Joseph idolatrous sacrifice and at the same time we're going to see the counter to that that is that there is human religion 
And then there is an understanding revealed by God through this history. As the truth becomes clear, the human parody of the truth, and there is a similarity between the two things, the two things come into view. That is, what's happening in idolatrous religion is revealed in the counter to that idolatrous religion, culminating in the cross of Christ. And by idolatrous religion, I just mean the, the sinful human heart, because that's the way it's going to be flattened out in the New Testament. Paul says that it's idolatrous desire that we all have. So let me state it in a high-flown philosophical manner. As transcendence opens up, transdescendence, that is, actual transcendence opens up to us, a recognition of God, transdescendence, that we would in some way reify the finite things of the world, that is also made clear to us. The infinitude of desire is directed obsessively towards that which is least able to satisfy it in idolatrous religion, that is literally toward what is inert, lifeless, maybe just a stone. And the revelation discloses truth and its parody. The perfect human and its parodic content. Freeing humanity from idolatrous desire means an exposure and displacement of that desire. Now, to state it, I just state it in very simple terms. We can either eat our neighbor or we can lay down our life for our neighbor. We can make the neighbor our object of desire, the focus of our religion, the center of our identity, in which I think we in some way are idolatrous, or we can share in the body of Christ. And I'm going to apply this. I think seemingly there is a kind of benign aspect of, to thanksgiving. But we need to recognize that there's also a kind of Eucharistic-like thanksgiving that has been incorporated into the American understanding and into the American religion. And what I'm saying is our thanksgiving in some way parodies the thanksgiving that we do here. The point here is not to deconstruct thanksgiving, but to suggest that we're very familiar with myth and there is a danger as Christians that will participate in myth. The Thanksgiving meal celebrates the great good will of the pilgrims. Notice the name pilgrims. God's good earth and her native people sharing together in the plenteous bounty of an emerging kingdom. Almost a millennial kingdom in the Puritans' minds. It's almost like that here at the beginning is Eden of the American experience in which nature, represented by the native peoples, and grace, represented by the pilgrims, meet. And of course it wasn't until around the time of the American Revolution that the name pilgrims came to be associated with these people. Who are these people? Well, they are those who have been pushed out by the Anglicans primarily. They're Puritans. They've become symbolic, though, of the American faith and the word pilgrim. You know, what is a pilgrim? It's a, a kind of description of somebody on a religious pilgrimage across a new holy land. Myth 
conjoined with national identity may appear benign, but there is also, I think, an inherent danger to myth. The colonists, we should get straight, were not innocent refugees. They were not mere pilgrims, in other words. By the 1620s, when they have the first Thanksgiving, hundreds of native peoples had already been to England and back, mostly as slaves. They described the natives as wild, mere roving heathens. And of course, they're describing that way because already the idea is they're going to take their land. The separatists, the Puritans, the pilgrims, begun to think of the United States as a new holy land. In a Thanksgiving sermon delivered at Plymouth, 1623, Cotton Mather, he praises God in a prayer, in a sermon, thanking God for the epidemic that wiped out the majority of the Wampanoag people. Well, those were the natives that actually came to the meal. And this blood for which Mather gives thanks is, quote, chiefly among young men and children, the very seeds of increase, thus clearing the forest to make way for better growth. You get the picture, thank you God for killing off these people, now we can take their land. They're seeing it as God opening up a, a new kingdom. We don't talk about that. And that's the way that myth always works. That we cover over the murderous or genocidal inclinations. We cover over the unfolding betrayal we sacralize those that are betrayed and all of this is already present I think in the hearts of the pilgrims you know even the corn I'm sorry to ruin Thanksgiving for you but even the corn was stolen by the pilgrims from the natives they had stole a huge quantity of supply of corn and in fact they had ransacked native graves of the Wampanoag because they found many pretty things in the graveyard. The American myth hides the death-dealing intention. That's not the way we tell the story. And the reason I'm saying this harshly is because I think we have to recognize this is precisely what Christ is exposing at the Last Supper. There's nothing hidden in the Last Supper, right? Jesus is about to die. He says, oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to get killed. And, oh, you're going to betray me. Nothing hidden in this gospel message. And when the message is preached, you know, the first sermon, Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. And that's why they're repentant. The true thanksgiving exposes the murderous complicity in the myth that the Jews would tell. I believe that every nation would tell itself. We need to sort out the myth and the truth surrounding not only our thanksgiving, but the myth behind the nation state. And I think we can do that by pitting the Eucharistic meal against thanksgiving. Both are meals, right? expressing thanks for the abundance of the earth. The use of bread and wine actually in the Bible goes back to Melchizedek. When Abraham meets Melchizedek, he offers bread and wine to thank God, the creator for the fruits of the earth. In both meals, thanks is offered 
in the midst of an impending death. You know, this is Jesus takes the bread. He said, this is my body. I'm about to die. This is my blood. I'm about to shed my blood. He gives thanks and breaks it. The impending death is not hidden. What always happens in religious myth is murder is covered up in the myth. But in the Last Supper, there is an inherently demythologizing element in the discussion. Betrayal, death, sacrificial servitude, and I believe the reversal of nation building. Why did the Jews agree to kill Jesus? They said it's necessary that we kill him that the nation might be saved. What is it that we're looking for? As humans, we lack life, we lack being, we lack identity. Religion, sacrificial religion, idolatrous religion, identity through the state is an attempt to gain life on our own terms. In this sense, the human project is always idolatrous. Think of Germany. You know, what did Germany lack at the end of World War I? Well, they lacked an identity. And the Nazi notion of an Aryan race filled in this mythical role. Nazism is really in Alfred Rosenberg, who is one of the ideologues of the new Nazi Germany, said, we are going to restore Odin. Odin is the god of wisdom, poetry, death, divination, magic. Odin is dead, but as an essence of the German soul, we are going to resuscitate Odin in national socialism, and Hitler is our guy. Here is Odin, the height of German thought, restored. They create a myth, and that myth is surrounding Hitler. Same thing happens, by the way, in Japan. It's a longer period, but back in the 1800s, the, what is called the Meiji Restoration. If you would ask somebody before the Meiji Restoration, you know, who they were, it wouldn't have occurred to someone to say, well, I'm Japanese, because the nation state had not arisen yet. They would say, well, I'm of the Choshu clan, or I'm of the Satsuma clan. But after the Meiji Restoration, they're using the emperor as a new identity and it would be this identity that would mobilize the population in what was really a religious war for the Japanese. American identity, German identity, Japanese identity are built upon imagined communities. You know, we all tell stories, but those stories are contested. I believe in World War II they were literally contested. And the modern person needs the imagined myth from which to form the common culture and the shared values of the nation. You know, it's a kind of religious-like identity. It really can't tolerate any counter-myth. The deadly aspect is obvious. In Germany, we can see it, that pure humanity, the pure Aryan race, is going to be polluted by foreign elements. The Japanese are going to do the same thing. In Japan, it's precisely not Christian to be Japanese, as in National Socialism, Nazism, it is precisely not German to be Jewish. You can't be both things. In Hitler's description, the Jew is not simply a bad race, a defective type. He is the anti-type. He has no culture of his own. He is man in the abstract.
as Hitler describes this, a lot of this reminded me of the pilgrims' description of the natives. In Germany, then, we're going to forge a concrete identity, Hitler said. The race is linked to the blood, if you read Mein Kampf. I don't recommend that you read Mein Kampf. But again and again, Hitler says, the material sign of this people, the material notion of their will is in the blood. The will to difference, to distinction, to individuation. Both the Aryan, that is the German, the Japanese myth, you know, Amaterasu is the sun goddess. The Aryan, there's going to also, the, the myth behind that is the sun god. And also the Roman emperor was attached to the notion of the sun, the soul invictus, unconquerable sun. And so the Jews, you remember they cry out at one point, we have no king but Caesar. Wait a minute, I thought you were Jews. They are swept up in the cultic state identity. They sacrifice the Jewish Messiah because they have no king but Caesar. The will to power, the power of distinction and difference, you know, this is the kind of the sun gods, is the original national identity. The Aryans, the Japanese, the Jews. In Hitler's words, the inner features of the character are brought forth. The delineation of the character brought out by the sun, though, is etched in blood. The Volk, the nation, one man, the Jew, must die. From the earliest days of humanity, we have used violence against innocent victims to establish our difference. Social crises produce undifferentiated violence. And so we use violence to say, well, we're different from these people. And the victim is the first difference. It is from the victim that we establish difference. The difference between up and down, in and out, inside and outside. Don't cross this line. Retaliation, an eye for an eye, is the way that humans do justice. And Jesus is going to say, the blood of Abel cries out from the ground. What does the blood of Abel cry out for? Vengeance, right? God puts a mark on Cain that no one would take vengeance upon Cain. But you remember the next character is Lamech who says, I will take vengeance. Seventy times seven. We hear the voice of vengeance in many of the songs. The one who is persecuted cries out for revenge. Christ halts the revenge. He exposes the murderous nature of human desire. And he provides access to life and being on God's terms and not on our terms. And so the great irony of the American myth is that it enfolds Eucharist and church into the founding of America on the Manitoba American Council website. It notes that each element of the thanksgiving is not true. In other words, they just go through it. The people are called pilgrims. They were never called pilgrims, except for 200 years later. They did not land at Plymouth Rock. They were not friendly to the natives. You know, they just go on through it. They end it by noting the, the, the myth about the landing on the rock. First of all, if you've ever sailed or even rode a boat, you know you probably don't want to land on a rock. They speculated that it may originate when it says 
Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. They may be thinking, oh, we're like Peter. We're going to land and we're going to establish this new nation on this rock. The appeal to these scriptures gives credence, I'm still quoting from their website, to the sanctity of colonization and the divine destiny of the dominant culture. They use their religion to wipe out the native peoples. That's what the website has said. The Eucharist addresses our need to possess the stuff of our neighbor, to possess our neighbor. It is meant to turn our most basic desire, our most trivial jealousies, our most acquisitive interest from their murderous intent. There are two things happening in the death of Jesus. Forgiveness is offered, but murderous desire is uncovered, right? The two things that are unfolded throughout Scripture culminate in Christ. Jesus' persecutors break his body. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we acknowledge humans are body breakers. But no more bodies need be broken as Jesus exposes and reverses this murderous intent. When we eat this bread, it is a reversal, I think, of just basic cannibalistic desire exposed and reversed. You don't need to eat your neighbor or you don't need to acquire what your neighbor has. God provides it. What is it you want? Well, we don't really know what it is we want, but I think it's identified in Christ. The being of Christ as God stands in place of the victim. The writer of the fourth gospel, he uses a very interesting word. He says that we munch on Christ. The trogang is the word in Greek. It brings to mind not just ingesting food, but kind of sucking out the marrow out of the bones, sucking out the life. Normally that we would do to one another, but Christ provides life where in fact there was formerly only death. And Christ's life displaces deadly desire. In breaking the bread, we confess we're all persecutors. That's what we're able to see, that the song we sing at the foot of the cross. We can imagine, oh, that we, if we were there, would have done no different. We do not come to this meal with clean hands and pure hearts. But the sacrifice displaces idolatrous sacrifice. And so our demand for a sacrifice that would take away our personal and social angst, our violence and fear. If we would create that sacrifice, it will be deadly. But God gives us a sacrifice in place of what we would do. We break bread as an exposure of our intent. Our tendency is to scapegoat others. As always, you know, that's the means of redemption, of being human. But that's not the end of the story, for there is then Christ, the final scapegoat, the one who uncovers the scapegoating mechanism. And so when we take the cup to drink the blood, the need for victims, for others, for rivals, for outcasts should be undone in our own heart and in our community. In his blood, we find only forgiveness. There is no hint of revenge either now or in the future. That is, we no longer take vengeance. All revenge then, all retaliation is forsworn. As the writer of Hebrews says, 
Jesus speaks a better word. Jesus' blood does not cry out for justice. His blood cries out for mercy. When we, in drinking the cup, we refuse to be retaliators and become forgivers. This is my body which is for you, indicates at a minimum that we have solidarity through the fellowship around the body of Christ. We recognize an organic oneness of the body that we cannot create. So I'm not saying that there is not an element that God does for us, but the meal is part and parcel of establishing and maintaining an alternative community, an alternative kingdom. The rules of the meal link the conduct of the participants. It's a different kind of meal. Wrong community practice, this is Paul's depiction in Corinthians, violates, voids the meaning of the meal. All who partake lay down and sacrifice their lives. If not, Paul says, then it's not the Lord's Supper you're participating in. It's not a, a sacrifice like any other. He says, if when you assemble, you ignore one another, each going ahead with his own meal, some hungry, others overindulging, then the meal you have just eaten is not the Lord's Supper. Certainly, it's God that does it, but we are participants in it and it relieves the need for thanksgiving by any other means. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.